Hello everyone, this is Sam of Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, YouTube, Stitcher, and other platforms. And this will be the third installment of our series on the origins of the First World War. The first two, if you did not already hear, were on the Ottoman Empire and Serbia. And this one will be part three, Austria-Hungary. And after this one, I expect that in July, I'll also produce a special installment for patrons only on Bosnia, which, although it was not a combatant state, it was the site of the crucial precipitating event that brought on the war. And so it's really crucial to understanding the power contest and the complex politics that brought this war about. But firstly, we will discuss the country, if you can even call it that, the state that was actually the first to declare war and was the first to commit an open act of war. And so in that way, you can say actually literally started the war, which is Austria-Hungary. And this lecture will be sponsored by the letter I. So when the First World War began, Austria-Hungary was simply the latest form the latest incarnation of a very long-standing political power center that had dominated most of Central Europe for about 400 years, and that is the Habsburg dynastic empire. Several years ago, when I was discussing the emergence of the modern world and the so-called Age of Absolutism, I posted a lecture on Central Europe and the rise of the Habsburgs, so I will link to that in the description. But I left that story off basically at the end of the Thirty Years' War and the Peace of Westphalia, which tried to reimpose some sort of stability and coexistence in Central Europe after the massive religious rupture and the series of devastating wars that it brought about. And up to that point, just to quickly recap, the Habsburgs had emerged from really being a minor noble family with a small domain in Switzerland and had used a series of strategic alliances, especially marriage alliances, to amass power and to put themselves at the center of politics in the German-speaking world to the point that by about 1600, they had arguably become the most powerful dynasty with the most formidable empire in the world, stretching all the way from Eastern Europe across the sea to America. And they always kept with them their traditional motto, which shows the sort of soaring heights of their ambitions. And the motto is an acrostic, A-E-I-O-U, which can be taken to stand for Austria est imperare orbis universae, which in Latin means Austria ought to rule the entire world, or the same phrase in German. It's a sort of clever double entendre in German. It's alles Erdreich ist Österreich untertan. And at the zenith of their power, it did seem as if the Habsburgs from their central seat of power at Vienna on the upper Danube might actually be within striking distance of total world domination. And they borrowed a great deal of symbolism, their aspirations, the idea of universal empire, an all-embracing domain where all the different lands and peoples of the earth all owed their loyalty to one emperor. They borrowed this 
to a great degree from Asian empires like the Ottomans and the Mongols. But they brought the sort of majesty and soaring ambition no one had ever seen before in Europe, right into the middle of the European continent. But as I recounted last time, they eventually reached certain crucial obstacles that ended up thwarting this sort of dream of universal empire. One was to the east, the Ottomans, who repeatedly attacked Austria and its domains from the southeast and besieged Vienna in 1526, although they were unsuccessful because of flooding. But nonetheless, the Ottomans did overrun and occupy most of the Kingdom of Hungary, a crucial Habsburg domain, and held it for well over 100 years. To the west, they ran up against the great obstacle of the French, who were able to muster the resources to stop their advance and furthermore were willing to interfere in the empire itself to undermine the Habsburgs. And then the third great obstacle which really undid their power from within was the Protestant Reformation, which split the Holy Roman Empire and the German lands and furthermore led to the disastrous Thirty Years' War. The results of that war after it finally ended in 1648, included the loss of effective Habsburg domination over most of Germany, such that the Holy Roman Empire became more or less just a hollow shell with no real power center at Vienna or anywhere else. But nonetheless, they were able to retain control over Bohemia, the crucial Czech Slavic kingdom just north of Austria, which had actually been the site of the beginning of that war. So after 1648, the Habsburgs were forced to retrench and to rely more and more on the resources of their hereditary domains, especially in Austria and Bohemia. And they had to use, again, very careful diplomatic maneuvering, not necessarily to agglomerate more power, but just to maintain peace within and outside the Holy Roman Empire. And arguably, the mid-1600s saw the early emergence of a kind of balance of power, an intentional diplomatic strategy among the great powers of Europe to try to maintain peace by not letting any one state emerge as preeminent over the others. In this same period, the late 1600s and early 1700s, can be seen as the efflorescence of the Baroque Age, in which the Habsburg Empire continued to be basically a Hausmacht, as it was called in German, meaning a family power or a dynastic domain, and in this way not really universal, no longer really able to claim a title like the successor of the Roman Empire, but a nonetheless a formidable, complex, rich, and dynamic domain centering really just on this one individual of the Habsburg dynast. It was a complex agglomeration with very little in common, with very different ethnic and linguistic and even religious complexions all around these different domains, and not much uniting them other than the ruling house. And as the historian A.J.P. Taylor famously said about the history of the Habsburg Empire, quote, "...in other countries, dynasties are episodes in the history of the people." In the Habsburg Empire, peoples are a complication in the history of the dynasty. And the incredible complexity and multivariousness of this empire 
is captured just by reading out the full title of the Habsburg ruler, Leopold I, who was the ruler of Austria in the late 1600s, up until his death in 1705. So as of the time of his death, his full title was, quote, Leopold, by the grace of God, elected Holy Roman Emperor, forever august, King of Germany, King of Hungary, King of Bohemia, Dalmatia, Croatia, Slavonia, Rama, Serbia, Galicia, Lodomeria, Cumania, Bulgaria, Archduke of Austria, Duke of Burgundy, Brabant, Styria, Carinthia, Carniola, Margrave of Moravia, Duke of Luxembourg, of the Upper and Lower Silesia, of Württemberg and Teck, Prince of Schwabia, Count of Habsburg, Tyrol, Kyburg and Gorizia, Landgrave of Alsace, Marquess of the Holy Roman Empire, Burgovia, the Enns, the Upper and Lower Lusatia, Lord of the Marquisate of Slavonia, of Port Naon and Salines. So clearly this was a very grandiose title. Some of these domains were really outmoded to be in this list, such as Alsace and even Habsburg itself, that old canton of Switzerland where the dynasty had begun. And the family no longer ruled these domains. They had been lost or ceded at some point in the past. And also some of them were more just prospective which Leopold listed in his titles optimistically, such as Galicia, which the Habsburgs would not control until some years later. So really, it's, uh, it, it's an exaggerated list of titles, but it shows the degree to which the Habsburgs celebrated the fact that they could embrace all of these different lands, these different peoples, and unify them all around themselves. And they created an extravagant and vibrant court life at the royal court in Vienna to emphasize this self-image. It was centered firstly at the old medieval palace called the Hofburg in Vienna, which was relatively small, basically a castle, and which did not compare to the great palaces, say, in France, because there was still vulnerability to attack from the Ottomans, so they had to have security. But over time, especially as the Ottoman threat was beaten back, They began to open this palace up and to use it more and more for ceremony and pageantry to show their wealth, their power, and also the great variety of tastes, of styles, of fineries and luxuries that they could obtain from their massive multivarious domains and from abroad. And this helped then to put forward a new kind of justification for their rule. Even if they were not universal emperors, they still put themselves forward as guarantors of peace and harmony among these various different far-flung domains. They more and more also put forward a religious justification for their rule as a bulwark protecting Catholicism, which continued to be the shared religion of the vast majority of their domains and their subjects. They put a great deal of money into pageantry and art to glorify the Catholic religion and most especially the Eucharist, the consecrated host, which Catholics, unlike Protestants, continued to believe to be the actual body of Christ. They also embraced the distinctive style of the Catholic Reformation, which has come to be called Baroque, 
and arguably the Habsburgs were the greatest patrons and champions of the Baroque in the world. And the Baroque style is understood to appeal to the senses through lavish, dazzling art and music, as had been endorsed by the Catholic Council of Trent. It was intended to cultivate a feeling of awe and majesty, and particularly to celebrate motion, action, complexity, and the harmonization of contending forces. And again, this echoes the way the Habsburgs wished to be viewed as this harmonizing force, unifying a complex, dynamic realm. Habsburg Vienna was also a center of Baroque music, and the Habsburgs patronized composers from all over Europe, but most especially Venetians. And then in later years in the 1700s, also native Viennese composers such as Johann Schmelzer. And incidentally, Leopold I himself, that ruler whose titles I read off, was also a composer. He'd grown up in a world of music, and he himself tried his hand and showed a great deal of talent and mastery. He wrote Requiem Masses for both of his wives after they died. And the Baroque style of music also emphasizes richness, complexity, and dynamism. Later in the 1720s, during a period of some prosperity, Leopold's successor Charles VI tore down the old stone fort of the Hofburg and rebuilt it as a new palace, especially to house his massive library, collecting over 200,000 volumes. And from that point onward, it was a requirement that all printers in Austria had to give a copy of every book that they published to add to the collection in this great library. The palace also served as a stage. Both the, the palace and the gardens outside served as stages for theater and ballet, which were art forms that then spilled over from the royal court and flourished throughout Vienna and also in other important cities, especially Prague in Bohemia. So there was no doubt that the Habsburg capital at Vienna attracted the attention, the curiosity, the envy of people all over Europe and even beyond. But meanwhile, they had to somehow, of course, maintain their actual power and control over their domains on the ground, which was extremely complicated, being located right in the center of Europe, with possible threats and opportunities looming on all borders in all directions. And over the course of the 16 and 1700s, the Habsburgs did begin to make significant gains, especially in the east at the expense of the Ottoman Turks. There were a series of stalemate wars in the mid-1600s, but this struggle finally culminated in a great confrontation in 1683, which turned out to be pivotal. So the Austrians had been strategically providing shelter to Hungarian rebels and dissidents who had been resisting the Turks and sometimes crossed over and took asylum in Austria. Finally, the Turks decided to put an end to this, and so they attacked in 1683 and launched a massive expedition that besieged the capital of Vienna once again. But the Austrians were able to rally support, including the support of other kingdoms around Central Europe, such as Poland, who came to their aid in defense of Christendom. Also, just as crucially, politically speaking, they were also able to rally the support of principalities within the Holy Roman Empire, even including Protestant states such as Brandenburg, Saxony, and Hanover. And so, in effect, this struggle reinvigorated the Holy Roman Empire 
and brought the emperor himself, the Habsburg dynast, back to the center of German and imperial politics. So together, this allied coalition of Christian states and principalities pushed back, was able to take back all of Hungary from the Ottomans and eventually add these then back onto the Habsburg domains. And gradually then they were able to turn the tide and push the Ottomans further down the Danube Valley and progressively gained more territory at their expense bit by bit over the next hundred years, significantly including Transylvania in the east and most of Croatia to the south on the Adriatic. And as a result of these gains, there was a gradual shift of the empire, a shift of its center of gravity, a shift of its demographic makeup, a shift eastward and southward. And decade by decade, the empire became more multi-ethnic and especially more heavily Slavic, until by about 1800, Slavs were actually the slim majority of the Habsburg subjects. But meanwhile, they experienced more setbacks in the West. So beginning in 1700, there was a series of military and diplomatic failures. They lost the so-called War of the Spanish Succession. So when the last Habsburg king of Spain died, so a, a related branch of the same family had been on the throne of Spain. And when the last Habsburg king died, Austria wanted to then replace him with an Austrian relative. But they were opposed by a coalition who wanted to prevent this from happening, including France. And so France and its allies moved to block the succession of a Habsburg dynast. And the French then, in order to, to stop this, they preemptively invaded Germany. And the Austrians lost several crucial battles to the French, but narrowly escaped a total disaster because with their British allies, they were able to stop the French and win a significant victory at Blindheim on the Danube. And so hence the outcome of this war was mixed. The last Habsburg ruler of Spain was succeeded by a Bourbon who was related to the kings of France. And this tipped the balance of power more in favor of France. But as a sort of consolation prize, some territories from the Spanish domains were given over to Austria, including Belgium and Lombardy, the area around Milan in north-central Italy. And this began a long, gradual extension then of Habsburg power into Italy as well. So they started to expand to the south as well as to the east. In the 1730s, the Emperor Charles VI had no male heir. He only had a daughter, Maria Theresa, who had been born in 1717. And this threatened a possible succession crisis because various different realms, both within the Habsburg domains themselves and foreign states outside of them, might refuse to recognize a woman on the throne as the legitimate successor. And so Charles used up a great deal of money, resources, and political capital pressuring dynastic estates within Germany and Central Europe, as well as foreign rulers, to sign on to a document called the Pragmatic Sanction, which formally designated his daughter Maria Theresa as his successor. When Charles died in 1740, Maria Theresa took up the throne of Hungary, so she was recognized outright as the Queen Regnant of Hungary. But as for Austria and Bohemia, the Diets or parliamentary councils there were more reticent, and so formalistically they chose to recognize Maria Theresa's husband, Franz of Lorraine, as the ruler, 
And so he became the titular ruler of most of these various domains. But Maria Theresa actually ruled from behind the throne as de facto queen. Now, as for the states abroad, Prussia, this rising, growing German power to the north, absolutely refused to recognize her as ruler of the Habsburgs' domains, most particularly Silesia, a very rich and valuable German province situated right between Prussia and Austria. So opportunistically, they invaded and seized Silesia, which led to an eight-year-long war called the War of the Austrian Succession. And Maria Theresa eventually agreed to make peace with Prussia by ceding them Silesia in return for Prussia recognizing her right to rule all the rest of the Habsburg domains. Now this war, although it did not turn out catastrophically for Austria, it was nonetheless the beginning of a new mounting crisis created by the rapid rise of Prussia under the ruler Frederick II. And this became a new real threat challenging Austria within the Holy Roman Empire and undoing most of that progress that Leopold had made in rallying the German states around Austria. More and more, Prussia became the sort of leading Protestant state, leading a Protestant bloc in opposition to Austria. And this crisis in the mid-1700s then led in turn to a so-called diplomatic revolution, a dramatic realignment where Austria decided that in order to stop this juggernaut of Prussia, they had to appeal once again to religious loyalties and to rally Catholic powers to their side in order to contain Prussia. And this meant first and foremost making nice with their longtime traditional enemy to the West, France. So in this realignment, France and Austria became allies and stood together against Prussia, which then allied in turn with Britain another Protestant power to the north. And hence, you can see this, this realignment as a kind of reassertion of the old religious divide of Catholic versus Protestant. And so when war a few years later broke out between France and Britain, Prussia, then taking Britain's side, preemptively attacked Austria. And war broke out within Germany all over again and led again to a brutal, bloody struggle a land war within Germany. And ultimately, France lost the battles at sea to Great Britain and had to sue the British for peace. But on land, Austria was able to hold its ground fairly effectively against Prussia. And after the war, the alliance between Austria and France was further sealed by the betrothal of Maria Theresa's youngest daughter, named Maria Antonia, to France's crown prince or dauphin named Louis. And hence, Maria Antonia was sent to France and became known as Queen Marie Antoinette. And you may know some of what ended up happening after that. But how was it that Austria was able to hold its own effectively and hold off this Prussian threat, at least for the time being? Well, a lot of that had to do with the very carefully planned and implemented reform program that Maria Theresa put into motion domestically within her domains, especially within Austria. So Maria Theresa began an age of gradual reform and centralization, and she refocused power around herself as a kind of new enlightened monarch who should be known and visible to the public, who should cultivate public favor and support. She cultivated an image as the Übermutter or Supreme Mother of the Realm, 
She renewed the religious basis of Habsburg rulership in keeping with this diplomatic revolution, and she reinforced Catholic hegemony in her domains, carried out persecution of Jews and Protestants, there were many expulsions, and harsh censorship of any heretical, radical, or subversive ideas, especially those that went against Catholic teaching. She continued the program of Baroque beautification and glorification of the dynasty, but in a comparatively more simple, understated, neoclassical mode. And she built a new palace, a summer palace called the Schönbrunn, which was grand and elegant in the late Baroque style, but also not as enormous and grandiose as Versailles or even of the Hofburg, but rather more homelike and more private, again emphasizing her status as a mother and as a leader of a kind of domestic world. And as for her institutional reforms, she instituted compulsory education and began building an education system, a public schooling system throughout the domains, which was understood, of course, to be beneficent, but also at the same time very utilitarian and pragmatic to help to train and form a professional workforce that could staff a professional administration. She extended state support for early industrialization. And this was a crucial strategy because Silesia, this territory that Prussia had seized, had been a major center of mills, workshops, and nascent 18th century industry. And so after it was taken, the crown subsidized businesses to move down into Austria and expand with some degree of success, such that two distinct economies and two prosperous elites formed in the two main kingdoms of Austria and Hungary with a powerful agrarian aristocracy based on the fertile land and productiveness of the agriculture in Hungary and a business and industrial elite in Austria. She made early efforts to centralize the rule of this very complex dynastic domain and began implementing standardized law codes and tax codes across many of these different duchies and counties and principalities. She formed a more trained military officer corps and a trained administrative bureaucracy. And in all of these efforts, she and her advisors took a lot of inspiration from machines, especially from these new complex automata that were becoming a fashion, a sort of craze in the 1700s, like the Mechanical Turk, this supposed chess-playing automaton machine that was first brought out and displayed and demonstrated in 1770 at the royal court in Vienna. And she and her ministers used many phrases like the machine of state and expressed a desire for regularity, predictability, and control in the governance of this empire. And she also took a lot of inspiration simply from the militaristic style reforms being carried out by their great rival, Frederick of Prussia. And these reforms then further accelerated after Maria Theresa's husband, Francis, died in 1765. So at this point, with Francis out of the picture, these various domains like Austria and Bohemia, where Maria Theresa was not technically the queen regnant, Francis was simply replaced then by their eldest son, Joseph, who took the throne as Joseph II. And so there was this odd co-rulership then with Maria Theresa and Joseph sharing power 
between 1765 and 1780. And at this point, there was an even accelerated program of domestic reform. For example, in the early 1770s, they gradually removed the Jesuits from power, whom they saw as sort of holding back their reforms and as a kind of alternate power base cutting into the centralized authority that they believed should be in the hands of the monarch. They seized much of the property and especially the school system of the Jesuits and put it under royal control. They also began weakening serfdom, basically cutting into the extensive and even tyrannical powers that many noble lords and landlords had over the peasants on their domains. So the empire by this time was fairly prosperous, but it depended to a great degree upon the brutal demands for labor and taxes from the peasantry, who were mostly serfs. And so between 1770 and 72, Maria Theresa inspected the conditions of the serfs, found them to be terribly impoverished and oppressed by work, rents, and taxes, and she issued a series of decrees affecting the conditions of the serfs. Serfs were given the right to take cases and complaints to royal courts rather than simply to their lords. So this was cutting directly into that power relationship. She limited levies of labor required of serfs to only three days a week maximum and only 12 hours per day. And serfs were also given the option of buying their freedom from their lords at a set limited price. Now, as for foreign policy, Maria Theresa and Joseph were able to establish more or less equal and peaceable diplomatic relations with the new rising powers, especially those that were taking greater and greater initiative in Eastern Europe, namely Prussia and Russia. And in 1772, they worked out a bargain where the three states of Austria, Prussia, and Russia would jointly partition Poland, and Austria gained the province of Galicia, the sort of large southern section of Poland, which was added on to the Habsburg domains. And hence, for the first time now, they gained a large number of Polish subjects as well as a large number of Jews. Maria Theresa died in 1780, and Joseph II came to the throne in his own right as sole ruler between 1780 and 90. And he, even more than before, was a really busybody ruler, aggressively involving himself in all aspects of governance and issuing an average of 700 edicts per year. So his court became almost an edict factory. He instituted very harsh penal codes, but also at the same time further weakened the institution of serfdom. And in 1781, he issued a so-called serfdom patent, which abolished what was called Leibeigenschaft, or the power of landlords to demand labor levies. It gave freedom to the serfs to move around, to change their occupations if they chose, and also to marry without their lord's permission, which had previously not been possible. And it banned the physical punishment or beatings of serfs. This decree had a humanitarian effect, but the motives behind it were also really mainly fiscal. The nobility and the clergy in the empire were tax-exempt, and so the taxes mainly came from the peasants, and very high labor and rent demands placed upon those peasants then diminished what they would be able to pay to the state. And so hence, granting them freedom from those demands and levies then increased state revenue. 
And the result was very dramatic, mainly in the German lands, especially in Austria. But meanwhile, they were largely ignored or blocked in different ways by the nobilities in Bohemia and Hungary. And undoing the serfdom in those countries was a much slower process. Joseph II also reversed some of Maria Theresa's religious policies. He issued decrees of toleration. And these kept in place the special official position of the Catholic Church, but it did give freedoms and protections to Protestants, Jews, and Eastern Orthodox, all of whom were becoming more and more numerous as the empire expanded into Eastern Europe. People who were not Catholic were allowed to get university educations and to work in government. And so essentially, these toleration decrees served the purpose of bringing more knowledge and skilled labor into the service of the state. Joseph II was also fiercely anti-clerical, which can seem in some ways contradictory because he was devoutly Catholic, and he condemned what was called Freigeist, or free thinking, which more and more was gaining some fashion in the late 1700s. But at the same time, he was a lay Catholic who was highly skeptical of the clergy and its powers. He saw the clergy as an obstacle to his control over his domains. He attacked the papacy, and he suppressed the mendicant orders, the Franciscans and the Dominicans. In 1782, these orders were totally banned, along with various monastic orders such as the Benedictines, the Carmelites, and others. He despised monasticism, as did many of his advisors and supporters, who saw this system as drawing able-bodied subjects away from work and childbearing, in which they could serve the strength and prosperity of the state. And as for his style of worship, Joseph and his like-minded subjects and allies favored so-called enlightened or aufklärt styles of piety, so he discouraged what, was, what has sometimes been called Baroque piety with elaborate ceremonialism like the Corpus Christi processions and fiery sermonizing by preachers and favored instead a more internal and reflective piety which should cultivate a resignation to fate and to events as God's will and of quiet, tame emotions such as heiterkeit or quiet contentment. And many reformist officials and writers who supported Joseph in his reforms were also specifically Freemasons. And in the 1700s, about 60 lodges arose in the Habsburg Empire, including in Vienna and Prague. The most prestigious of them all, which attracted many government officials and prominent artists and writers, was called True Harmony in Vienna. And the first two leaders of the lodge were the court surgeon to Joseph II, and then secondly, the geologist and state museum director, Ignaz von Born. And arguably, these Masonic lodges took up much of the role that had been played by coffee houses and reading societies in Western Europe. And they served the function of sharing and circulating new scientific and geographic knowledge, as well as, of course, along with that, various forms of quackery like mesmerism and homeopathy. Joseph II supported and patronized masonry in his realms as an alternative network to replace the Jesuits who had been expelled. And lodges in Vienna attracted many popular writers and artists such as Mozart 
and his friend, the impresario Emmanuel Schikaneder. And Mozart and Schikaneder together staged the Masonic-themed opera, The Magic Flute, at a popular theater in 1791. And the priestly character, Sarastro, arguably was inspired by Ignaz von Born, the geologist who was the worshipful master of the lodge that they belonged to. So you can see the magic flute as sort of embodying and encapsulating a lot of the hopes, the optimism of this new emerging reformist, anti-clerical elite in the Austrian Empire. But already by the time that opera was staged, there was a partial reaction happening. And arguably, the opera is also partly about that sort of increasing repression under the next emperor, Leopold II. So Joseph died in 1780 and was succeeded for the next two years by his brother Leopold. He was very cautious in his temperament. He saw himself as a conciliator. He didn't have the same kind of ambition to absolute rule as Joseph did. And he wanted to make peace with various enemies within society, such as the church. And he supported the idea of a constitution and the sharing of power. And in this way, wanted to walk back the extreme absolutism of the Joseph period. Domestically, he confirmed the traditional rights of the Diet in Hungary to enact internal laws, and he also allowed Serbs in the southern part of Hungary to hold their own Diet and make some of their own laws and policies. He extended religious toleration to Protestants in Hungary, who were a significant party in that kingdom, and he eased some of the old restrictions on Jews, for example, allowing them freer settlement and to settle in towns and cities. He relaxed many of Joseph's harsh penal codes, but he only increased the tight censorship in order to stop any possible subversion or infiltration, which he was very afraid of. And as for foreign affairs, right upon coming to power, he reached out to the traditional rivals of Prussia and the Ottomans and made concessions in order to try to establish lasting peace and stable borders. But of course, the big dramatic challenge of his reign was the French Revolution. What to make of these upheavals and sudden changes in power day to day and month to month in France, the home country of his own sister, Marie Antoinette? Early on, he tried to be optimistic and to see the French Revolution as merely a renewal of a traditional constitutional balance. And he wrote to his sister in France in June 1789, quote, One is happiest when a country has a constitution. The nation is attached to it, and it is much easier to direct it towards its own well-being and happiness, which is the only end for which every government is instituted, end quote. And even as the revolution became more radical and the National Assembly seized more power, even in 1790, he continued to write, quote, The only purpose of societies and governments is the welfare of the subjects. A sovereign who does not abide by the laws of the country thereby forfeits his position, and henceforth no one is obliged to obey him, end quote. So you can see this dramatic passage as distancing himself from Louis XVI and throwing him under the bus. He made this mistake, and hence he is caught in this mess. But nothing like that can happen in Austria. So Leopold held off from any involvement with the French Revolution until he died in March 1792. And he was succeeded 
by his son Franz, who took the Austrian throne as Franz II. And under this emperor, there was a complete reaction. Franz was relatively private and paranoid. He renewed the push for centralization and consolidation of absolute power. He liquidated many of the local councils and ministries all around the various Habsburg domains, consolidating almost all of them into a single so-called conference council with three ministers of foreign, military, and interior affairs, each of which reported directly and was answerable to the emperor. He pushed centralization to the extreme, despite a lack of any shared national language or customs outside, at least, of the German domains. So you could say that, you know, as the historian John Murren said about the early United States, you could say it was a kind of roof without walls. There was this increasingly powerful centralized government trying to somehow administer this complex domain with no shared identity or common language or customs. And again, this domain was essentially held together by personal loyalties to the dynasty. There was no developed sense of a shared ethnicity, way of life, or political vision. In other words, no nationality. And it seems the emperor himself, and I call him this because he was still technically the Holy Roman Emperor, even the emperor himself still uh, acknowledged this. And for example, when a particular man was recommended to him for promotion to a high military office, he reportedly responded, quote, he may be a patriot for Austria, but the question is whether he is a patriot for me. Now, under Franz, the empire was really forced to face its first actual revolutionary challenge. They could no longer ignore the impact and the example of the French Revolution. And in order to try to stop what they saw as an outbreak of chaos in France, they declared war on the French Republic in April 1792. In 1794, cells of Jacobins plotting possible revolutionary actions were discovered in Budapest, Vienna, and Graz. And this led to panic in the government with renewed crackdown, including the banning of any public discussion of politics. The military struggle with the Revolutionary Republic went on for five years. Most of the fighting was concentrated in northern Italy against French forces under the Republican general Napoleon. So northern Italy was the main battleground. The Austrians were able to hold on to control of Milan and the surrounding region of Lombardy until 1796, when Napoleon and his troops took Milan and also further seized the Republic of Venice. The following year, in 1797, in the Treaty of Campo Formio, the two sides, Austria and France, agreed to make a simple trade. The Austrians gave up Milan and Lombardy to the French in return for handing Venice and the Veneto over to Austria. This peace only lasted for about seven years. In 1804, Napoleon crowned himself as Emperor of the French. And in response, Austria, Britain, and Russia allied together in a coalition to try to remove him from power. The French invaded Germany, and there was extensive fighting in Hanover and then in Bohemia, that crucial Habsburg realm close to Vienna. Austria was able to make use of very good, skilled, well-trained military officers. But unlike the French, the Austrians were not able to muster public enthusiasm or inspire mass mobilization, like the French Revolutionary Republic and Napoleon were able to do in France. In 1805, Napoleon defeated the Austrian and Russian joint armies at the Battle of Austerlitz. 
This massive battle forced Austria's capitulation. Austria ceded extensive territories to Napoleon's German allies in the Holy Roman Empire, especially Bavaria. And many other German principalities then jumped ship and allied with Napoleon, even becoming sort of puppet satellite states of Napoleonic France. Now, this presented a tremendous danger to Austria because at this time, the Habsburg ruler was, of course, the so-called Archduke of Austria, King of Bohemia, King of Hungary, and Holy Roman Emperor. But the Holy Roman Emperor was technically elective. Each succeeding emperor had to be elected by the most prominent powerful princes in the empire. And for hundreds of years, it had always been a foregone conclusion, of course, that they would always elect whoever the next Habsburg was. They were simply by far the most powerful dominant family in Germany. But now, suddenly, the tide had changed. And more and more, it seemed possible that Napoleon was going to strong-arm enough German states to make himself the heir apparent, such that when Franz died, the electors of the empire would install Napoleon as his successor, or some puppet of Napoleon. So now, not only was the empire like a hollow shell, it was increasingly appearing to be a dangerous weapon that Napoleon could seize for his own uses. And so in 1806, Franz preemptively dissolved the empire. He declared the empire to be abolished after more than 800 years of rule. And to replace the Holy Roman Empire, he further declared a new so-called Empire of Austria. So now the Habsburg rulers in Vienna were called not simply Archduke of Austria and King of Hungary, but Emperor. And for the first time, all of the Habsburg realms, at least in principle, were formally claimed as one singular state under one dynastic ruler and one capital. Also, to replace the Holy Roman Empire and to try to continue to somehow manage relations with the other German states, he formed a so-called German Confederation, which was usually dysfunctional and the site of feuding and power contests between Austria and Prussia. And so this formation of a German confederation, which was comparatively very weak, disorganized, and the total abolition of the ancient Holy Roman Empire, this further confirmed the shift of power and focus eastward and southward. Seven years after that, the Austrians and Germans once again re-entered the war against Napoleonic France in 1813, and the Austrians crucially helped to win the Battle of Leipzig against Napoleon. And this led then to a period of attempted retrenchment. So soon after the Battle of Leipzig, once they believed that Napoleon was on the run, Franz and his cabinet ministers convened the Congress of Vienna, where they invited diplomats and representatives of the various states around Europe to work out how to rearrange territory and sovereignty on the continent once they had gotten rid of Napoleon. The Habsburgs played host to this grand meeting, which attempted to restore the old order and balance of power, almost as if the French Revolution had never happened. A lot of the negotiation in the Congress took place at balls, with grand orchestral music. It fostered the idea and promoted the image of Vienna as the heart of Europe, the center of a civilization defined by bonds among monarchs and elites, bound by shared taste in art, music, and pleasure, as well as shared history and religion. 
In the negotiations in this Congress, Austria was able to gain the French-occupied areas of Italy and the Balkans, including Lombardy, the Venedo, and Dalmatia on the Adriatic coast. So they gained a great deal of new subjects who were overwhelmingly Catholic, but who were of different ethnic groups, especially Italian. The main orchestrator of this Congress, of course, was Clemens von Metternich, a young, ambitious, and shrewd diplomat from an aristocratic family in the Rhineland. Franz appointed him as foreign minister during the Napoleonic Wars, and then a few years later as chancellor of the new Austrian Empire. He represented Austria in the Congress, and he helped to steer the Congress towards restoration of the status quo. He committed himself to conservatism, or some would say to reaction, maintaining the traditional social system and maintaining absolute monarchy, both at home within the Austrian Empire and abroad. Domestically, he reasserted the power of the emperor and centralism. Only Hungary alone, this large, important, prosperous kingdom, was able to retain some limited formal autonomy with its own diet and its own legal system. But really, de facto, all initiative in terms of policy was reserved to the executive at the imperial palace in Vienna. Metternich and the emperor formed a cabinet, which was selected by and accountable to the monarch alone, with no parliamentary support. It was understood that it should only implement and administer policies and directives from the imperial court, and there should be no popular representation, which they took as contradicting the principle of monarchical rule. As Chancellor, Metternich worked basically hand-in-glove with the Emperor Franz until he died in 1835, and Metternich helped to ensure that Franz was succeeded then by his son Ferdinand, despite the fact that Ferdinand was developmentally disabled, or as he was described at that time, feeble-minded and unable to read. And in effect, then, Metternich was really able to take over as the de facto ruler of the empire over the next 13 years. Metternich expressed contempt for the public, both in Austria and around Europe, and he expressed great fear of any opposition or subversion. He aggressively reasserted censorship and imprisoned many dissenters. He had an extensive secret police force and a large network of informers, and he used these powers to crush a liberal reform movement that called for autonomy and democratization in Hungary. In Italy, where the Habsburg rule was the most unpopular of all their domains, he advised simply buying the Italians off with bread and circuses, as the Romans had done. But he continued basically running the northern Italian provinces as Austrian possessions. And he warned diplomats and administrators in Italy that if local autonomy was granted within Italy, then all the other parts of the empire would want it as well. And hence, in his view, his hands were tied. He had to hold the line or else the empire would gradually dissolve. So through his time as chancellor, the Habsburg grip on power was effectively maintained. And the empire continued to grow. And as of 1848, it was a massive domain of about 257,000 square miles, making it geographically the second largest state in Europe. And it was home to about 37 and a half million subjects of many various ethnicities and nationalities, including roughly 8 million Germans, 5 million Italians, 4 million Czechs in Bohemia, 
3 million Western Ukrainians, or Ruthenians, as they were called, 2.5 million Romanians, 2 million Poles, 2 million Slovaks, 1.5 million Serbs, 1.5 million Croats, about 1 million Slovenes, 3 quarters of a million Jews, and over half a million others, including Armenians, Roma, Bulgars, and Greeks. So this was an amazingly multivarious empire, and moreover, the stability of this empire was very vulnerable to foreign influence or interference. Foreign powers could play upon ethnic rivalries or separatist feelings in order to destabilize such an empire, and hence, Metternich, in his view, domestic and foreign stability were inseparable. It was crucial to keep the peace with neighboring powers in order to keep the stability of the Habsburg realm itself. So in foreign affairs, Metternich positioned himself as the sort of leader of Europe, and more specifically as the main champion of the conservative cause. He wrote to Lord Wellington, the hero of the Battle of Waterloo, in 1824, he wrote, quote, For a long time now, Europe has had for me the quality of a fatherland. And it seems when he said something like this, he was thinking really of the aristocratic world of royal and imperial courts as kind of the civilization and in which he was comfortable in the water in which he swam. He saw Europe at large as basically an extension of Austria. And practically speaking, Austria, being situated right in the middle of the continent, needed peace and stability based on shared norms and alliances. And he believed this peace and stability had to be maintained also by, by maintaining a stable social order. The worst possibility, the great fear of Metternich and his compatriots was revolution, the danger of upheaval, overturning of the social order, and the chaos and bloodshed that he had seen not only in the reign of terror, but also in the Napoleonic Wars, breaking out all over again. And Metternich was effective because many monarchs and ministers all around Europe agreed with him. They saw the validity of his views, and hence he had very wide influence in his heyday. So Austria for a time was an almost, in a way, a hegemonic power at the heart of Europe, acting as a kind of beneficent guarantor of international and political order. On the other hand, of course, radicals and nationalists of various stripes saw him as their great bete noir, the arch enemy of freedom, liberty, and progress. But importantly, there also were others in between, especially moderate reformists, who saw him as possibly well-intentioned but too inflexible. Increasingly, many of these sort of reformist statesmen saw Metternich as flirting with disaster, and interestingly, Lord Palmerston of Great Britain criticized Metternich for his total intransigence and refusal to allow for any gradual reform. And Palmerston wrote to Metternich himself, quote, This immobility is not conservatism. Your repressive and suffocating policy is also a fatal one and will lead to an explosion, just as certainly as would a boiler that is hermetically sealed and deprived of an outlet for steam, end quote. So many have seen this comment by Palmerston as possibly prophetic, 
Metternich not only tried to coordinate the policies and actions of conservative statesmen, he also made Austria to some degree a base for foreign interventions to suppress rebellions and mutinies, including in Naples in 1821, in the Papal States in 1830, in Berlin in 1833, in Krakow, which Austria then annexed in 1846, and in Ferrara in 1847. And you may already know that that last intervention in Ferrara came just the year before Austria then faced the second great revolutionary challenge, which arguably maybe Lord Palmerston had prophesied. So most of the Austrian Empire seemed to be fairly placid and even contented in the 1830s, but there was apparently a sea change in the 1840s. There was a rising middle class, especially in Vienna and Prague, which increasingly wanted a share in power. There also was an economic depression, which created more discontent, especially among the educated but impoverished urban intelligentsia. One can see more and more open satire and calls for reform surfacing in the press and especially in plays, and Vienna was a great center of the theater. More radical ideas, which were censored within the Austrian Empire, could be put forward by exiles abroad. And some of these reformist ideas included giving local diets around the empire the power to approve or reject taxes, giving peasants the right to vote and to have representatives in these diets, and the idea of forming an overarching imperial diet with all of the regions represented. Some of these proposals and the banned texts that wrote about them were circulated among growing secret societies and underground reading groups within the empire. In the winter of 1848, a revolution broke out in France in which the French King Louis-Philippe was forced to abdicate at the end of February. While this was happening, a wave of petitions poured into the royal court requesting representative assemblies, tax reform, and freedom of speech press, and religion, basically, as they were known at this time, liberal reforms. As these petitions piled up without response or action, finally in early March 1848, an uprising broke out in Vienna, in which street demonstrations demanded responses to the petitions, and furthermore, the resignation of Metternich, whom they saw as the great obstacle in the way of reform. On March 13th, the imperial family finally sacked Metternich, and things seemed to be calm for a while as the emperor and his advisors tried to form a new government with liberal ministers. However, the riots and demonstrations spread. By the end of March, Italians, inspired by the revolution in France and probably also emboldened by the sacking of Metternich, began to demonstrate and even to attack the Habsburg troops stationed around Milan and Venice. They formed local revolutionary governments, and also soon after a revolutionary council formed in Galicia and declared their intent to form a new independent Polish government. Meanwhile, it was in Hungary that the revolution became most radical and militant of all. There had long been a moderate reformist or progressive movement in Hungary, mainly based in Budapest, which had made similar sort of liberal demands for freedom of the press, speech, and religion, for ministries that would be accountable to the Diet, not only to the emperor, that made demands for the abolition of tax exemptions for the nobility, and for the extension of the Kingdom of Hungary to include newly obtained Hungarian regions like Transylvania. 
On March 15th, just shortly after the sacking of Metternich, marches and riots broke out in Budapest, demanding also the release of political prisoners and new elections. The progressive reformists led by Batiani won these elections and formed their own government, which the imperial court reluctantly recognized and agreed to deal with under duress. On April 10th, the parliament instituted the so-called April Laws, enacting most of the long-standing liberal demands, and Emperor Ferdinand signed them into law reluctantly. But even as he did so, the ministries prepared to try to reconsolidate control and stop this spreading revolutionary movement. In July 1848, another new liberal government was brought into power. There had been a series of ministries that were very unstable. Five in total were cycled through over the course of the year. And they had to deal with tax boycotts and riots, which again mushroomed into an urban uprising. The emperor fled from Vienna, and finally the prince, Johann, was appointed as a temporary viceroy or regent to try to bring order back into the city. Johann did finally call and assemble a diet of representatives from all of the non-Hungarian lands, which convened in July. This diet finally abolished all feudal labor dues, including emergency so-called corvée labor, thus finally eliminating the last remaining vestiges of serfdom. In October 1848, some of the troops occupying Vienna began to leave the city in order to go southward to suppress the Hungarian uprising. So street mobs attacked them in order to prevent them from leaving Vienna. And violent street fights ensued, and several ringleaders of this October uprising, including one MP, were arrested and executed. The Diet withdrew from the city and relocated to the town of Kremsir. And this Kremsir Diet ignored the appeals from the Frankfurt Parliament that called for German unification. And instead, they sought to reimagine and recreate the Habsburg Empire as a liberal, constitutional, multi-ethnic state. Or as they said in German, a Völkerreich, an empire of peoples. They put forward a draft constitution that would create a permanent elected diet called the Reichstag, which would share power with the emperor. It would abolish legal privileges of the Catholic Church, proclaim freedom of speech and religion, proclaim all languages and nationalities to be legally equal, each nation or people having the right to preserve its unique identity. However, troops were gradually able to suppress the uprisings in Vienna, The emperor and the cabinet refused to accept the new proposed constitution, which then led to a stalemate and a continuing standoff in Vienna. So because of this continuing dispute within Austria, the Hungarian new parliament and government were actually able to consolidate control over Hungary fairly effectively. And so ethnic Hungarians, or so-called Magyars, were celebrating this success in the middle of 1848. But at the same time, it alarmed many Slavs, who in turn were afraid of losing the minimal autonomy and protections that they had been extended within the Habsburg Empire. So Croats, Slovenes, and Serbs all began to organize and arm themselves, preparing to fight on behalf of the Habsburg Empire against this new Hungarian government. So Batiani, the prime minister of this Hungarian revolutionary state, approached the imperial court in order to try to work out a compromise. But the imperial government refused to negotiate and instead continued to try to send in troops and even made an alliance with local 
Croatian lords and potentates who threatened to join together with the Austrian state to suppress the Hungarian Revolution. So conflict and struggle seemed to be popping up all over the empire, and it was extremely difficult to suppress what they saw as chaos. And in order to try to turn the page, increasingly the court felt that not only did they have to get rid of Metternich, but they had to replace this aging and so-called feeble-minded Emperor Ferdinand. So Ferdinand abdicated on December 2nd and was succeeded by the very young Prince Franz Josef, who was only 17 years old. And Franz Josef basically came under the control of the current Prime Minister Schwarzenberg, who went on a campaign to reassert and restore order around the empire. They quickly rescinded the April laws that had been enacted in Hungary and started trying to roll back that revolution. This led in turn to a radicalization. The Hungarian Diet refused to recognize Franz Josef as the new emperor, and a party favoring total independence came to power in the Hungarian Diet, led by a radical nationalist named Lajos Kossuth. Very soon, war broke out between the Hungarian nationalist rebels on the one side and the Austrian imperial armies and Slavic militias on the other. In addition, the new emperor and Prime Minister Schwarzenberg reached out to the Russian Tsar for help, basically on the grounds that this revolution was a threat to all monarchical states and empires. Ultimately, the imperial troops were able to defeat the Hungarians with the help of Croats and Russian troops and to take back control of Budapest in January 1849. Lajos Kossuth fled alone into the Ottoman Empire, and lived the rest of his life in exile, much of it in the United States. Two months later, in March 1849, the Prime Minister Schwarzenberg dissolved the Kremsir Diet in Austria, rejected their constitution, and stipulated that the empire would remain united with one crown, one single Diet, and one constitution, thus by implication abolishing the separate Hungarian Diet. He instituted an alternate so-called Stadion constitution that reserved the emperor exclusive power over foreign policy and the military with an appointed advisory council. It provided for the parliament to meet once a year, but the emperor would still have a veto and could dissolve the parliament at will. And it guaranteed certain basic individual rights, but also maintained that German would be the one single official language of politics, education, and administration. The Hungarian Diet, now basically illegal, withdrew eastward to the town of Debrecen and declared an independent republic. And they fought on with Polish support until they were forced to surrender in August 1849. Now, even after that final surrender, an extreme radicalized Hungarian nationalist underground continued and used more irregular tactics. For instance, in 1853, there was an assassination attempt where a Hungarian nationalist tried to murder the emperor Franz Josef by stabbing him in the neck, but he was saved by the fact that he was wearing a high, stiff collar. But nonetheless, in general, the Hungarian elite which was a largely rural aristocracy, did accept the new status quo, at least for the time being. So now a new period of relative stabilization began under the rule of Franz Josef and his ministers. So Franz Josef generally appointed moderate or conservative-leaning prime ministers who were generally friendly to France and Britain and relatively hostile to Russia. 
and they held back and remained neutral in the Crimean War in the 1850s. And more and more, the imperial government, although Franz Josef cared about the expansion and glorification of the empire, more and more they were consumed and distracted with just trying to maintain internal harmony and cohesion. So there was a constitutional age, basically from the 1850s through the 1880s, which in many ways pursued the sort of liberal policies that reformists had been asking for all along through the 19th century, and which started off for a few decades with some degree of peace and success, but eventually broke down. So in the 1850s, there was an effort to restore the status quo, albeit with some constitutional provisions. There was a period of economic growth and industrialization. Austria built an extensive and one of the best rail networks in Europe. There was a growing bourgeoisie, once again, in the major cities. And also, in most of the empire, at least outside the core region of Hungary, large estates were broken up and land was sold off to the peasants at a fraction of its assessed value. And this allowed for greater freedom and economic security for the country folk. However, there also were military losses, especially due to the dynamism of new rising powers around them. The first of these was the new kingdom of Italy. So in the 1850s, the prime minister of the kingdom of Sardinia Piedmont in northwestern Italy, named Camillo Cavour, began maneuvering to unify the various Italian states. And this necessarily involved trying to obtain control of Lombardy and the Veneto, which were still Habsburg provinces. And in this pursuit, Cavour made an alliance with France, which then began moving their troops into northern Italy. Franz Josef took the Austrian army under his own personal command into Italy in order to engage them. They engaged in a battle at the town of Solferino, and it happens that this was the last battle in world history in which all armies were commanded by their respective monarchs. Austria was catastrophically defeated, the Piedmontese were able to take control of Lombardy, and two years later, in 1861, they proclaimed a new unified kingdom of Italy. Also in that same year in 1861, the humiliation of this loss to the new state of Italy created another crisis, with the Austrian state being in tremendous debt and hemorrhaging money. They needed to raise taxes and revenues, but feared provoking another revolution. And so they offered new revisions to the constitution, which created more local diets like the Hungarian one for more different parts of the empire, and which gave those diets some power over taxes and finances. So this status quo held at least for a few years until the next crisis, this one being created by Prussia. So there had been many years, of course, of feuding within the German Confederation over whether Austria or Prussia would take the leading role in Germany. But Prussia under Bismarck was much more assertive and strategically shrewd in provoking small conflicts in order to rally the German states behind Prussian leadership. Austria fell more and more behind, with no diplomats anywhere near as skillful as Bismarck. In 1864, Austria reluctantly joined together with Prussia and other German states in a war to seize the Schleswig-Holstein region from Denmark. But then after that war was over, Prussia feuded again with Austria over who should govern in Schleswig-Holstein. And in 1866, Bismarck reached out and made an alliance with Italy. 
So now Austria is being sort of pincered on both sides, north and south. And together, the Italians and the Prussians attacked and quickly defeated Austria at the Battle of Sadova. The Habsburgs were forced to give up the Veneto to the Kingdom of Italy. And so after that point, the Habsburg Empire was left with only very small areas remaining with Italian populations, mainly Trentino in the Alps and the city of Trieste on the Adriatic, which had a mixed Italian and Croatian population. The Emperor Franz Josef was determined to regroup, raise money once again, and get revenge on Prussia. But he knew that they could only do that with the full backing of the Hungarian elites, who held a great deal of the wealth in the empire, and who could, if they didn't agree with the emperor's policies, could potentially stir up another nationalist revolt. And so, as a result, Franz Josef and his ministers opened up negotiations with the leaders in the Hungarian Diet, and they agreed to give them effective independence within Hungary. And the compromise agreement that they hammered out created the so-called dual monarchy of Austria-Hungary. So the empire was split into two parts of roughly equal size. One of them was officially known as the Kingdom of Hungary. It was given total independence over internal affairs, such as taxes, infrastructure, and language policy. The other half was simply the rest of the empire, the various regions that might be more German, more Slavic, more Italian. And this half of the empire was informally called Austria, but it never actually had an official name. Sometimes it was also simply called Cisleithania because it was on the nearer side of the Lathian River as compared to Hungary. But it was just a sort of agglomeration of everything in the empire that wasn't claimed by the Hungarians. Each realm, so-called Austria and Hungary, had its own parliament or diet, which controlled its own ministries of internal affairs. Also, at the same time, the empire as a whole would have three joint ministries appointed by the crown, and these included foreign affairs, the army, and the joint finances, which were needed mainly for the military. And this worked out well from Franz Josef's point of view because all that he really cared about was the military. Now, as for these two realms and how they worked, on the one hand, the Hungarian kingdom was ethnically very complex, just like Austria, but it was run as a Magyar supremacist realm. So the Magyars being the traditional name for the main Hungarian-speaking ethnic group. This kingdom vigorously suppressed the use of minority languages and denied the vote to all non-Magyars. There also were class restrictions on the ability to vote. Non-landholders were denied the vote, and hence the major landowning aristocracy was highly powerful. There was an extreme concentration of land, with about one-third of all the land in Hungary taken up by big estates of over a thousand acres, all of which were held by about one-fifth of one percent of the population. As of 1900, out of the 13 million rural residents of Hungary, about 10 million were completely landless peasants. So in effect, Hungary was really an oligarchic state, basically a puppet of the Magyar aristocracy, with a great deal of inordinate power within the empire, including in those joint ministries, because unlike Austria, the Hungarian elite presented a disciplined united front, which could advance their shared interests aggressively. On the other hand, this new domain, informally called Austria, was much more liberal and pluralist in its politics. It had a fairly powerful diet with a diverse makeup, 
Over the years from 1867 to the 1900s, the franchise was gradually extended to more and more of the male population, much as one saw at the same time in Victorian Britain. And finally, total universal male suffrage for men of all classes and ethnicities was instituted in 1907. So you can say that through the decades, these two countries, if you can call them that, were on divergent paths, and many local groups in the empire, especially within this new realm of Hungary, were very unhappy and were upset by being disenfranchised within that kingdom and denied the same sort of rights and freedoms that people of the same ethnicity even were enjoying in Austria. So the question arose more and more through these years of what would keep this strange empire together? How would these two very different realms with their different politics, their different philosophies, their different elites stay together? And how would they manage this diverse and fractious population within the two realms? And more and more writers, reformists, and even statesmen in the government expressed the need for an Österreichische Staatsidee, Austrian idea some sort of unifying philosophy or imperial mission that could keep this empire together. And interestingly, you can compare the situation here in this new Habsburg Empire to what was going on at the same time in the Ottoman Empire, where different sort of philosophical orientations emerged about what the empire should be like once the Tanzimat reforms were carried out. And there was a variety of Ottomanism, the sort of state-supported liberal pluralistic idea, then pan-Islamism and Turkish nationalism. Well, if one looks at the Habsburg Empire, you could say there was a lack of a Habsburgism in quotation marks. There was a lack of something parallel to the Ottomanism in the Ottoman Empire, the idea of the empire as a sort of all-embracing, all-inclusive, liberal, modern state that could make sense of and somehow unify this ethnic mosaic. And Franz Josef, the emperor, tried to make himself the sort of personal symbol of all the nations. And he went to certain lengths, like he was fluent in Hungarian and Czech, as well as in German, and he was conversational in Italian and Polish. He made a great point of touring and visiting all parts of the empire, trying to make himself a sort of visible personal presence to all the different peoples of the empire. But politically, he never allowed any move towards reform or internal autonomy in any parts of the empire after 1867. A sort of liberal pluralism did arise to some degree among the intelligentsia in Vienna. And this included, of course, the idea of ethnic equality and toleration and the ability to pursue local customs, use local languages. And again, they referred to this notion, this vision of the empire as a Völkerreich, an empire of peoples. And this idea was promoted to a great degree in the liberal German language press. For example, Franz Schuselka, a newspaper publisher, wrote in his own paper called De Reform. He wrote a tract in which he argued, quote, In Austria, no people should rule over another, and least of all over all other peoples. All peoples must enjoy equal rights, which will result in the voluntary fulfillment of common duties. Austria must be conceived as a multinational state, Völkerreich. It must be so constituted that it does not absorb any nationality, but preserves all. To that end, Austria was created. In this end lies all the justification of its continued existence. End quote. 
So you can see here, this is a particular answer to the question, what is the point of this empire? Why does it even continue to operate? And further, many of these liberal reformists tried to define the whole realm of Austria-Hungary as, quote, the lands of the Danube or of the Danubian peoples, a sort of attempt to link together all these people as somehow a geographical unit that naturally ought to be unified. But you can see how this sort of philosophy could be seen as dangerous to the imperial government because this idea of a, a geographic unity then threatened to displace the, the importance of the dynasty right, and of the emperor himself as the one point of unity in the whole empire. So this sort of liberal pluralism never got far into the inner circles of power. It was generally excluded except with one toehold that stands out as a temporary, brief exception. And that is the Archduke Rudolf, who was Franz Josef's only son, born in 1858. The Archduke Rudolf held liberal views. He was a lover of science and technology, and he wrote books promoting patriotism and celebrating the diversity and variety of the empire. He imagined Austria-Hungary as a pluralistic liberal state. Now, for many reasons, both personal and ideological, he was increasingly ostracized and rejected by the imperial court and even his own family. And in 1889, he died of suicide at the hunting lodge of Meyerling, aged only 31. So this sort of liberal pluralism, which I would call a sort of lost Habsburgism, never got very far and never got anywhere close to actual power. Now, on the other hand, as I said, in the Ottoman Empire, many turned to pan-Islamism and tried to renew and revive the religious justification for the Ottoman Empire. Well, the Habsburgs really couldn't do the same thing, at least not to any great effect. There was an inability to turn back to religion. And there are a number of reasons for this. For one thing, unlike the Ottomans, the Habsburgs had no religious title like caliph. They were effectively just secular imperial rulers, and religious leadership in the Catholic world was, of course, in the Vatican, which did not always see eye to eye with the Habsburgs, especially over control of Italy. There also was the increasing problem of minority religions. As the empire expanded eastward, there were greater and greater Jewish and Eastern Orthodox populations. And even within the Catholic world, in places like Austria and Bohemia, Religious loyalties had long become outmoded and worn out. Secular worldviews were gaining greater and greater currency, and they had even been undercut by the aggressive anti-clerical reforms instituted by earlier Habsburgs. Very few people in the Habsburg Empire were educated, say, in Jesuit schools. They'd been educated in secular schools. And so this sort of appeal to Catholic loyalties really was not effective. And most especially, it was ineffective at suppressing rising regional and ethnic consciousness, which then fueled nationalist movements. And whereas the Ottoman state, if they wanted to, to, could turn to a sort of Turkish nationalism because their empire more and more was concentrated in the Middle East and in places like Anatolia, the Habsburgs, by contrast, had formed this very complex agglomeration of domains in which no single nationality could effectively claim preponderance. So new local and regional nationalisms 
grew tremendously all through the 19th century, but especially after 1867, after this demonstration that Hungary could in fact achieve effective internal independence within the empire. And nationalism was fostered by new media, especially newspapers. And as Benedict Anderson has famously argued in his book Imagined Communities, newspapers coming out every week or every day could change people's sense of time, allowing them to reconceive their place in the world. And their loyalties could shift away from traditional ancient institutions, such as the church or royal dynasties, that depended on a sort of cyclical idea of history, that power and order always returned back to these sort of eternal institutions, and shift them away from that towards a more abstract sense of time as linear and unfolding in new unpredictable ways day to day. And hence people were able to imagine themselves as part of sort of abstract social groupings, especially defined by language. And nationalism was coming into the Austro-Hungarian Empire in many ways also from the West, from inspirations in France and Prussia. And there was a very complicated and problematic transferal because there was such an extreme intermixture, as we've said, of different ethnicities. There were no clear, hard boundaries between, say, a German region, a Czech region, a Slovak region. So it was a very complex and tumultuous transferal that could cause uncertainty and friction, especially in intermixed areas like Poles, Ukrainians, and Jews in Galicia and Ruthenia, or Croats and Italians in the city of Trieste. Also, some groups, especially Germans, were just scattered in small enclaves and clusters all around the empire. So even if you wanted to somehow create a distinct German ethnostate, where would you even put it? So nationalism was particularly dangerous and problematic for the empire, and hence it could never become the official ideology of the empire. Even if they wanted to promote a sort of German nationalism, this too was very dangerous because Germans were very scattered around the empire, and also most Germans were outside the empire in other countries and principalities. And Bismarck had been skillfully playing upon and rallying national loyalties and national feeling among the different German states to the north. So therefore, embracing German nationalism would therefore mean breaking up the multi-ethnic Habsburg Empire and joining Austria into some sort of German Reich in which they would not likely be the dominant presence. So in effect, German nationalism was just as existentially threatening to the empire as were Hungarian and Slavic nationalisms. Franz Josef naturally tried his best to contain the impact of rising national ideas, and he appointed a conservative prime minister, Edward Taffa, in the 1870s, who tried to keep some sort of internal harmony in the empire by, in his words, quote, keeping all the nationalities in a balanced state of mild dissatisfaction, end quote. And this sort of strategy of conciliation and counterbalancing of national groups worked all right for a while, between about 1867 and 1885. And in this time, there was a sort of early wave of often more moderate or liberal nationalisms, which arose amidst groups with strong educated elites or middle classes, such as Poles and most especially Czechs. These groups generally wanted autonomy, cultural renewal, and free expression of national feeling within the bounds of the empire. 
They emphasized autonomy as a way of protecting personal liberty, freedom of thought, freedom of speech, etc. And these groups often had strong historical claims. They could argue that they just wanted to restore or reassert their historical rights to autonomy. And they often argued that statelets like Moravia, Galicia, Slavonia had never actually fully disappeared, that legally they were still continuing as entities within the empire, and they simply deserved to get their autonomy back. The most prominent of these, again, was the Czechs. So Czech nationalists saw certain advantages in remaining under the Austrian umbrella. For example, in 1848, Palaki, the leader of the Czech national movement, was invited by the Frankfurt Parliament in Germany, which was trying to create some sort of unity among the German states. He was invited to go and represent Bohemia in this parliament, but he declined. And he said that he did not consider himself a German at all, but rather a Czech, like most people of Bohemia. And he said that the idea of the Austrian Empire joining into Germany would mean that Bohemia then would be absorbed and Germanized within this larger German Empire. And moreover, he argued that the Habsburg Empire, in contrast, served as a bulwark, defending the peoples of Central Europe against the threatening rise of Russia. That at least was his argument. So effectively, in his view, the Habsburg Empire was really a Danubian confederation that could serve to protect the freedom and even self-governance of the various peoples within its ken. And in this way, you can see this sort of liberal pluralism in the Habsburg Empire really was the forerunner of the idea of multinational institutions that would come later in the 20th century, like the League of Nations, NATO, and especially the EU as sort of purported guarantors of the independence of nation-states under a wider protective umbrella, particularly against the threatening powers of Germany and Russia. So for a time, as I said, after the creation of the dual monarchy, there was a period of fairly moderate liberal government in the 1870s, with some support from liberal reformists, some of whom also then flirted with the idea of going further and creating a sort of federal state with autonomy for the various national groups. But this idea was always forcefully blocked and vetoed by Hungary. The Hungarian elite could not accept this because they believed it would destabilize and break up the kingdom that they controlled so completely. And this constant frustration eventually led to disillusionment in the 1880s. For instance, the traditional Czech nationalist parties, which had repeatedly tried to get administration and schooling in Bohemia switched from the German language to Czech, eventually was displaced by a new, more radical and militant movement, the Young Czechs. There also was a broad disillusionment with liberalism and with the growing industrial economy, which although it was very dynamic and brought wealth into Austria-Hungary, it also created great inequality. So there was the emergence of various new parties that criticized and rejected this sort of liberal order. There was an emergence of more radical socialist parties, especially in Vienna, and also right-wing Christian reactionary parties, which also in a way saw themselves as criticizing industrial society and inequality. But even more than those, there was a great rise in militant separatist nationalisms, especially among groups in the empire that felt that they had been loyal and had gotten no reward in return. So these tended to be more radical and militant. They often had no historical basis 
they were calling for autonomy or complete independence for national groups that had never had an independent state attached to them before, such as the Slovaks in Moravia. They also often arose among groups where the majority of the group lived outside the empire, such as Italians, Ukrainians, Poles, and Romanians. And often they openly prioritized the survival of the nation over liberal individual rights. For example, the Romanian revolutionary Nicolas Barescu wrote in 1848, again in that formative revolutionary moment, he wrote, quote, For my part, the question of nationality is more important than liberty. Until a people can exist as a nation, it cannot make use of liberty. Liberty can easily be recovered when it is lost, but not nationality. We must seek only as much liberty as is necessary for the development of our nationality, end quote. This sort of more militant and communitarian nationalism was already there, right, in the early stage in 1848, especially in these sort of far fringe groups on the borders of the empire, like Romanians. But they came more and more to the fore and won over more of the loyalty of the rising younger generations in the 1880s and 90s. Another example of, of a movement of this sort of militant kind that arose in this later period is Zionism. So Zionism grew out of the loss of hope in liberal principles of toleration, particularly in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And its first leader and visionary was Theodor Herzl, who was an Austro-Hungarian Jew through and through. He'd been born and raised in Budapest and educated in Vienna. Also, in different ways, as I said, older, previously moderate national movements became radicalized. And this included German nationalism, which had tended to be very muted in the mid-19th century. But after 1890, a radical and openly anti-Semitic German nationalist party arose, based mainly in Austria, which wanted to abolish the dual monarchy, separate Austria completely from Hungary, and join into Germany. And this movement gained significant support, especially in Vienna, but it never actually came to power in government. Also in this same sort of tradition were Italian militants who demanded the annexation of the small remaining regions of Trentino and Trieste that remained under Austrian rule. And they called these small Italian-speaking areas, quote, Italia Irredenta, or unredeemed Italy. And so these militants came to be called Irredentists. And the Irredentist movement in Italy sometimes overlapped with radical socialism and anarchism. In 1882, the Emperor Franz Josef visited the city of Trieste in order to celebrate the 500th anniversary of Habsburg rule in that city. But an Italian irredentist named Guglielmo Oberdan tried to assassinate him by throwing a suitcase full of explosives at the Emperor. Oberdan was apprehended and hanged, but he reportedly refused last rites and cried Viva l'Italia before he died. And he came to be celebrated and memorialized all around Italy as a sort of martyr hero of the Italian nation. And a popular Italian national song was Viva Oberdan, Morte a France. Long live Oberdan, death to France. Sixteen years after that, in 1898, Franz Josef's wife, Elizabeth, also called Sisi, visited Lake Geneva. And while she was there on a dock, she was murdered by a young Italian anarchist who stabbed her in the heart with a file. Now, this was part of, you could say, a continuing pattern 
And there had been assassination attempts before on Franz Josef and other Habsburgs. But by 1900, you could say it was really becoming a tradition to attack and assassinate Habsburgs. There also was by 1900 a growing awareness of Austria-Hungary being somehow anachronistic and behind the times. The emperor, who now had been on the throne for 52 years and was growing quite old, was seen as a survivor from a different era. He reportedly told President Theodore Roosevelt that he was, quote, the last monarch of the old school. This state of affairs can be seen as very ironic, considering how much the city of Prague and most especially Vienna were becoming cultural capitals and centers of a new modernism, even of the avant-garde. So Vienna was the center of radical philosophies and the rise of new social sciences. It was the home of Sigmund Freud and his early psychoanalytic circle. It was also the home of radical modernist composers like Johannes Brahms and Gustav Mahler. It was the site of the so-called Vienna Secession, which was a radical innovative movement in art and architecture that started in 1897 when a group of radical designers and painters, including Gustav Klimt, who were interested in Art Nouveau, seceded from the Association of Austrian Artists and formed their own group and magazine in order to explore innovative forms outside of classicism. So Austrian modernism, like the nationalist movements, was also largely rooted in a disillusionment with liberalism, and especially in the optimistic idea of rational scientific progress. And the modernists rejected this sort of liberal mindset in favor of intuition and primitivism, which then could be woven in also into these aspirations for revolution and national renewal. Now, as all of this was going on, ironically, again, Austria after 1900 could also be seen as a kind of model of pluralist democracy. It held its first universal male suffrage election in 1907, and the new Reichstag had 516 MPs, of which 254 were Slavs, 231 Germans, 19 Italians, 6 Romanians, and 5 Jews. So you could say this was a remarkable example of inclusive pluralism being brought together in this one great capital at Vienna. But ideologically, the results were extremely fragmented. The largest two parties were the conservative Christian Social Party and the Social Democratic Workers Party, but each one had fewer than 100 seats, and they were followed by dozens of regional and national parties, which often had very little common ground among them. And the result then was a remarkably wide range of views and interests being represented, but it was extremely hard to form any sort of governing coalition. And more and more, as the empire democratized, it also began to seem ungovernable. So it was very hard to say whether this pluralist democratic experiment would work and whether this range of left-wing, right-wing, and nationalist factions could somehow work together towards any common agenda. And the imperial government knew that the success of this experiment still depended a great deal on the foreign and military situation. Would the empire be able to maintain peace with its neighbors and avoid attack and fragmentation? And the real testing ground of this question more and more obviously was the southeastern frontier of the empire in the Balkans. So the creation of the dual monarchy inflamed Slav nationalist feelings within the Kingdom of Hungary, among especially the Croats and the Slovenes, who were often brutally repressed and persecuted and subject to Magyarization assimilation policies. 
They were resentful both of the Hungarians and also of the Czechs and other groups in Austria who were getting greater degrees of civic freedom and the right to self-expression that they were denied in Hungary. Also added into the mix, of course, was the rise of Serbia, a new autonomous principality with its own army. And many of these Slavs then in Hungary began to look to the Serbs as possible allies for support in their campaign for freedom or even independence in Hungary. So this changed the dynamics with regard to southern Slavs, and it raised the question of whether the Slavs in the empire especially in Hungary, but even in Austria too, might be better off trying to simply secede and get out of the empire and join some sort of Slavic association. In 1878, Russia attacked and defeated the Ottoman Empire, and it gained a great deal of territory. Also, as part of the peace settlement, both Serbia and Romania were recognized as fully independent kingdoms. So Russia now had a great deal of leverage They had these new independent states, which were predominantly Eastern Orthodox, that they could look to as allies or even satellites, and that they could use to surround and pressure the Ottomans for more exclusive rights and privileges, such as exclusive access to the Straits. So as a result, Russia suddenly vaulted into the dominant position in the Balkans. And moreover, they had an ally in Serbia with a significant, powerful army right on the Austro-Hungarian border. This immediately created a new threat that the Serbs could foment revolts among the Slavic regions of the empire, or even bring in a foreign power to help attack the empire directly, just as the Italians had done in the 1860s with their alliance with Prussia. So Austria felt the need to somehow contain the damage of this settlement in 1878. They had to make some sort of counterbalancing move to prevent Serbia from simply taking over the entire Western Balkans and giving Russia a major foothold right on their border. But the big test, of course, of whether they could do this was what would happen to the Ottoman provinces of Bosnia and Herzegovina. These were mountainous territories just west of Serbia that were ethnically mostly Serbian or Serbo-Croatian, but were religiously mixed. Some were Eastern Orthodox, and they generally identified themselves as Serbs. Some were Roman Catholic, and more often were called Croats, and some were Muslims. So if Serbia took over control of Bosnia and Herzegovina, that would have major ramifications. For one thing, it might cut off Austria's ability to build a railroad from Vienna to Constantinople, which they still wanted to complete. It might also provide a sea base for Russia to then launch ships directly onto the Mediterranean and become a Mediterranean naval power. So in order to prevent this, the Habsburgs made a deal with the Ottomans who still technically were sovereigns of Bosnia. And this deal was ratified at the peace conference in Berlin. And according to this deal, Austria-Hungary would occupy and administer Bosnia, even as it still technically remained an Ottoman province. In addition, the Austrians also occupied a small strip of land on the southwestern border of Serbia called the Sanjak of Novi Pazar. And this small territory would stop Serbia from being able to expand all the way to the sea and get a seaport. The following year in 1879, fearing Russia, Austria also reached out to Germany, the new unified state of Germany. And they made a mutual defense alliance with Germany, according to which, according to which each country promised to support the other one in case of a Russian attack. So it was an effort at containing what they saw as the expansive, aggressive power of Russia. 
So for some years, the situation seemed to be manageable. The Austrians were able to maintain a careful balance of power with Russia, and this held basically up until 1903, at which point the king of Serbia was overthrown by militant army officers and replaced with a new king who aligned himself with the ultranationalists. This new government in Belgrade premised its existence on the promise of expanding Serbia to include all of the South Slavs. And that included, of course, then by implication, the Croats and Slovenes within Habsburg territory. So now it became clear to Austria-Hungary that their efforts at carefully containing and holding off the Russian and Serbian threat was failing. In 1908, Austria outright annexed Bosnia and Herzegovina, making the whole province into a so-called condominium, ruled by a joint Austrian and Hungarian ministry. However, Serbia continued building its power and basically saw this annexation of Bosnia as a further provocation. They continued to build up their military and furthermore, they won a stunning victory in the First Balkan War in 1912. As a result, Serbia gained more territory, including some seacoast in the Aegean Sea. It increasingly seemed that the Serbian mission of uniting all of the South Slavs in the Balkans was going to succeed at some point sooner or later. And the Austrian government merely had to hope that they could achieve this somehow within their own empire by bringing Serbia into the Habsburg fold, along with Croatia, Slovenia, and Bosnia, rather than allowing Serbia to function as a Russian puppet right on their border, taking territory from them. By the end of the First Balkan War in December 1912, the situation was seen as dire and existential. And in that month, Austria's chief of general staff wrote to the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, quote, The unification of the South Slav race is one of the powerful national movements, which can neither be ignored nor kept down. The question can only be whether unification will take place within the boundaries of the monarchy, that is at the expense of Serbia's independence, or under Serbia's leadership at the expense of the monarchy. The cost to the monarchy would be the loss of its South Slav provinces and thus of almost its entire coastline. The loss of territory and prestige would relegate the monarchy to the status of a small power. End quote. So this is a remarkably straightforward, explicit statement of the Austro-Hungarian leadership's views, at least the military's views, which he was trying to impress upon the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. So who was Franz Ferdinand? What was his position? How did he factor into all of this? Well, he was the nephew of the Emperor Franz Josef, and he held the title Archduke by virtue of being the crown prince and heir apparent. So with the death of Rudolf, who I mentioned before in 1889, the title of Archduke passed to the next in line, which was the emperor's younger brother, Charles Louis. He then died in 1896, and so the title then passed down to his son and the emperor's nephew, Franz Ferdinand. Now, Franz Ferdinand in some ways was arguably the antithesis of Rudolf. He was a romantic traditionalist and an arch-conservative. He celebrated traditional aristocracies. He loved the pastime of hunting. He despised democracy and openly opposed bills extending the franchise in Austria. He saw elections and parliaments as a sort of middle-class vulgarity, undermining the unity and stability of the empire, and he rejected modern art and modernism altogether. 
he wanted to imagine the empire as a sort of commonwealth of elites of all ethnicities. In 1900, Franz Ferdinand married Sophie Chotek, a lady-in-waiting who was the daughter of a Czech diplomat. Now, because Sophie's father was from a minor Czech noble family and not in any way from royal blood, the imperial family disapproved of this marriage, and although they finally allowed it to go forward, they insisted that it would be a morganatic marriage, which technically means that although Franz Ferdinand was the, the heir apparent, Sophie could never claim the title of queen or empress, and all the children of the marriage would be excluded from the line of succession. This marriage, although the imperial family disliked it, it actually helped to give a positive public image to Franz Ferdinand. It showed his romantic temperament, and indeed, this was a close, intimate, and loving marriage. And it also could be seen to symbolize Franz Ferdinand's sort of vision for a united, multi-ethnic empire. And indeed, Franz Ferdinand desired very much to accommodate the Slavs within the empire. And he openly entertained the idea of giving the Czechs in Bohemia another autonomous kingdom, like the Magyars had in Hungary, and thus creating a triple monarchy. He moreover wanted to keep the peace with Serbia for as long as possible, and it happens that the Emperor Franz Josef agreed with this, but Franz Ferdinand had a further ultimate long-term aim. He felt that the empire could not confront and defeat the Serbs and the Russians by extension, unless Hungary was somehow more subordinated to the imperial government, allowing the government to raise more money and troops from Hungary. So all of these things were in some way preparing for an ultimate confrontation with Serbia and with Russia down the road. And indeed, by 1912, the government had been testing out for several years possible contingency plans for a war with Serbia, which more and more they thought was inevitable. And these contingency plans fell into two basic categories. There was a plan A, which dealt with prosecuting a war against Serbia alone, and a plan B, which would deal with a war against Serbia and Russia, if Russia jumped in as well. And so these plans were increasingly sophisticated. There was more and more urgency being put into them as this conflict loomed. Now, in the midst of this situation, in the spring of 1913, the Austro-Hungarian High Command discovered that one of their recently resigned heads of military intelligence named Alfred Radel had been receiving cash payments from the Russian government for several years. And they were able to determine that in return for these payments, Radel had been providing Russia with copies of all of their secret contingency war plans, and furthermore, that he had been feeding the Austro-Hungarians false information and false estimates about Russia's military strengths. So this was a shocking and humiliating discovery. Initially, the government tried to keep it secret. Rather than imprisoning and trying Radel for treason, instead they left him alone in his apartment with a loaded gun, and Radel simply took the opportunity then to kill himself before being imprisoned and tried. However, after a few more months, the word got out, and it was reported in the press what had happened. And historians debate and disagree about the precise significance of the information that Radel passed to the Russians and whether or not it had a significant effect on the war that broke out a year later. Some have argued that the plans that he had secretly given to the Russians were already outmoded and being revised. However, nonetheless, it created an enormous embarrassment for the Austro-Hungarian state. 
and many, especially reformists in Vienna and Prague and other cities, argued that Radl's treason showed the lack of unifying loyalties and patriotism in the empire. And by implication, it showed the contrast between Austria-Hungary on the one hand and Russia on the other, which by comparison they saw as more united in purpose and identity, and hence as a formidable enemy that was encroaching into Central Europe and was inevitably going to undermine and try to destroy this multi-ethnic empire from within. So it was in this atmosphere that in June 1914, the Austro-Hungarian government reached out to Germany in order to renegotiate and extend the purpose of their alliance, such that it was not only a defensive pact, but an agreement to try to prevent any further encirclement of Austria from the south. So now the new rising fear was that Russia and Serbia would foment hostility to Austria-Hungary and form another Balkan League to attack them as they had just done to the Ottomans a matter of months earlier. So it was in this atmosphere of rising tension that the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie made plans to travel to Sarajevo, the capital of Bosnia. And their idea was that on June 28th, they would ceremonially inspect the Austro-Hungarian troops in Sarajevo. They would make several public appearances and perform certain state functions. Also, at the same time that this trip to Sarajevo would serve as a kind of couple's vacation. It was an opportunity for the two of them to spend time together since Sophie was not welcome at the imperial court in Vienna. And so they had to spend time together outside the capital. Their train arrived in Sarajevo at 9.50 a.m. on the 28th of June, and they were picked up by car and taken to the town hall. So again, I will leave this story off there, and I'll discuss further whom they met there and why it was so significant that they were making this appearance in the capital city of Bosnia in a special installment, which I will post for patrons on Patreon on the history and politics of Bosnia. So thank you so much for listening. And once again, this lecture is brought to you by the letter I. And I will specifically thank my current active patrons whose names begin with I, which include Ian, Ichiba, Isaac, another Isaac, Isaac Siegel, Isabella Granich, and Isabel. Thank you.